Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for the week of April 30th, 2023 through May 6th, 2023. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way YouTube will keep pushing out new content as it's released. If you're listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review as well. And also check out the description because there is a link to the show notes where you can review all the articles that we talk about in this show as well as some other articles that we didn't necessarily have time to cover. So make sure to check that out. Without any further delay, we're gonna go ahead and jump right into the articles. So first article here is gonna be, the DOJ detected the SolarWinds hack six months earlier than first disclosed. US Department of Justice, Mandiant, and Microsoft stumbled upon the SolarWinds breach six months earlier than previously reported Wired has learned, but were unaware of the significance of what they had found. The breach publicly announced in December 2020. I'm not sure if you heard about this. This was actually big news for SolarWinds. Uh, involved Russian hackers compromising the software maker SolarWinds and inserting a backdoor in the software serve to about 18,000 of its customers. So if you don't know what SolarWinds does, basically SolarWinds makes a lot of network management and monitoring kind of software. They even have their own kind of security software SIM tool that, uh, that you can get as well but the hackers had been in various networks for between four and nine months before the campaign was exposed by Mandiant. Wired has now confirmed that the operation was actually discovered by the DOJ six months earlier in late May, 2020, but the scale and significance of the breach wasn't immediately apparent. Suspicions were triggered when the department detected unusual traffic emanating from one of its servers it was running a trial version of the Orion software suite made by SolarWinds, according to sources familiar with the incident. So think about that, right? The government, the Department of Justice, they knew about this vulnerability, right? Like this issue, this attack, this breach, well before it became mainstream. And, you know, obviously as a customer, that's pretty concerning just knowing that there's this massive breach well in advance of everybody else. Now, keep in mind, right? Like there's a lot of customers that use SolarWinds, like a lot of major customers. It's not just like this small uh, mom and pop software uh, developer, right? Like these are mass scale tools. So that's obviously concerning because, you know, six months to resolve this issue potentially with these intruders, these uh, hackers, you know, getting into other software, uh, other companies, right? That are running the software, maybe they're exploiting the software. This article in particular wasn't really clear as far as, you know, what kind of countermeasures were being implemented, if any, right? Like, was the Department of Justice monitoring this? And then in conjunction with SolarWinds, they were implementing some defenses, Right, like typically with disclosures, with vulnerability disclosures, there are some steps that are taken, right, behind the scenes that you probably won't see as a consumer, right? You're not gonna see the development of how they're creating protections and countermeasures for this stuff. Maybe they were just watching what they were doing. 
and trying to build up a larger case, right? Sometimes when like the FBI and the Department of Justice, when they identify issues, sometimes it's not mass scale enough for them to, you know, really devote a lot of resources to, or at least publicly, right? Um, and so it almost kind of sounds like that is this, you know, happened in this case a little bit where they were kind of monitoring and trying to see exactly what was being compromised, you know, what was being done by the attackers and what were their ultimate incentives or motives that they were trying to get after. But, you know, that's something to keep in mind too, when software patches are delivered, when they're updated, they're released, you know, what you're being notified about, right? Like that fix probably didn't just come out yesterday, right? It probably came out months before that or was identified months before that on something like the dark web or, you know, these back channels that are used. And so if you're just updating it when it's released, you know, you're probably a little bit behind, right? If you wait a long time, especially with critical patches, things like that, you're massively behind, right? They're probably already in your network. <laughs> so, you know, it's very interesting, the whole release cycle and vulnerability disclosure process of how these things work, right? And if you're not super familiar with it, go check out a bug bounty program, right? Those are really interesting to just go through the releases and things that people have submitted. And sometimes, you know, companies don't release bug fixes or vulnerability fixes. And then these companies or people that find these issues, these researchers, they'll just release it and say, you know, we gave you six months or we gave you ample time to release a fix and you didn't do it. So we're going to tell all your customers about it so they know. And then that also lets the world know if they didn't know already, right? So super interesting kind of situation. Next article, first draft of controversial UN Cybercrime Treaty slated for June. The first draft of the UN Cybercrime Treaty will be released in June after years of debate and concern over what the document might cover. The UN General Assembly voted in December 2020, uh, 2019 to begin negotiating a treaty centered around cybercrime after Russia took issue with the previous agreement, the Budapest Convention, and demanded something new to address the issue. Our objective, and this is a quote, our objective in the process is a focus on uh, criminal justice, which is aimed at improving the investigation and prosecution of cybercrime. We want that treaty to be firmly grounded in human rights, fundamental freedoms, and rule of law, Lee said. During a related meeting, member state, states raised a range of issues, including international corporation, uh, cooperation on law enforcement operations, technical assistance, cybercrime prevention, implementation plans, and more, she said. Representatives from Microsoft and Google appeared on the panel alongside Lee, highlighting several other concerns they have as two of the biggest companies that typically face subpoenas or legal requests from governments. So think about this, right? The UN itself, if you're not familiar with what it is, the UN is the United Nations. So basically, the idea is a lot of nations get together. It's this group of major nations with voting powers and things like that, where they work to essentially keep balance within the world, right? Like that's the idea. So when there are um, significant issues in certain areas of the country or the world rather, right? A lot of these nations will vote 
you know, should we get involved? What should we do to combat this issue? So, for instance, when there is the war in Ukraine and Russia, right, between those two countries, there was, you know, discussion, votes, things like that with the United Nations as far as how they should respond, right? Should all of the United Nations go in and help? Should we give humanitarian aid? Should we do these th kinds of things, right? Or, you know, obviously a lot of times countries will be able to do their own thing, but certain actions will upset the United Nations. So you have major superpowers, right? Like the United States, some of these larger nations, a lot of times they're not going to do stuff that's going to upset the group, or at least not massively, because the idea is you want to be in this group and you want to kind of have an impact on the world, right? So it's, it's a whole thing. Check it out if you're not familiar with it. But cybercrime in general, right, the internet as a whole is kind of the wild, wild west, right? And there's not a lot of group cooperation or agreement on how a lot of these cybercrime issues and situations should be dealt with, right? A lot of it comes out of countries like Russia, right? We know that. Uh, also, North Korea has a lot of cybercrime and things associated with cryptocurrency and all kinds of stuff, right? So there's not, you know, a ton of cooperation on that kind of stuff. So it is good to see some steps taken to advance that agenda as far as creating cooperation, right? All these countries are not going to always agree on what should be done, the rules or the laws that should be in place, right? And sanctions that should be put in place if a country goes against those agreements, right? But it's good to see these countries actually talking about it and working towards some kind of pack or treaty, right, that they're going to operate within, right? And so, you know, I think that's really the biggest thing with this particular, uh, with this particular article, right, is just seeing that, that push forward to create some kind of stability and agreement on how cybercrime is going to be handled, right? Until we reach that point where it's, there's agreements, there's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of attacking groups and things like that that are just going to be able to do things and they're not going to face issues or worse, you know, countries, nation state sponsored groups that are just going to do whatever they want, right? And so, you know, again, I think the, the closer we get to an agreement, the better off that we'll be as a whole. Next article report shows 92% of orgs experienced an API security incident last year. Today, application security provider Datatherium announced the release of a new report in partnership with TechTarget's Enterprise Security Group, ESG. ESG surveyed 397 respondents on cloud-native applications and API security and found that 92% of organizations experienced at least one API-related security incident in the last 12 months. You know, with the growing adoption of application security and cloud security, it's not that crazy that companies are obviously facing security issues, especially with like APIs, right? And if you don't know, don't know what an API is, basically it's the idea at the programmatic level, so at the software level, you can interact with an application, right? We see a lot of applications have APIs that developers can create customized things to do with, right? And really just interact with applications. But that, that's the big idea, right? 
The report scheduled to release on May 5th also revealed that 57% experienced multiple API security incidents, highlighting that many organizations still have a lot more to do to defend cloud native applications and APIs against threat actors. Again, we're, we're learning how to defend these things successfully, right? It's still a growth area, an emerging area. One of the key challenges unveiled by the research was the transient nature of the attack service. For instance, 75% organizations typically charged or up, changed or updated their APIs on a daily or weekly basis, creating new vulnerabilities in the attack surface for security teams to confront. So as these teams are changing their APIs and what you can do with those APIs, how you do it, all that stuff matters, right? And if that doesn't go through a thorough security review process, and that's kind of where we're running into issues kind of with this DevOps environment where things are rapidly produced, it's not only, okay, these things are rapidly produced and deployed, it's how do we also introduce security into that process so as they are rapidly developed, they're rapidly test for security issues in the same manner, and then that way when they're released, they're not introducing all these new security vulnerabilities. So that's kind of what we're facing in this world, especially from a security standpoint, is how do we keep up with that process? There's a quote, modern development cycles bring faster, more frequent product releases and updates, kind of like what we were talking about. And the growing number of APIs that change on a daily or weekly basis make it imperative to address the changing attack surface. This rapid rate of change also creates shadow APIs and zombie APIs, so APIs that maybe were used in the last version, but they're no longer used five versions down the road, right? But they still exist within the software code. You can still interact with them. Maybe they have new vulnerabilities that are introduced because of what has changed since they were originally being used. But now they're no longer being used, but you can still do that stuff with those APIs. And this says, uh, which can be hackers' favorites API, hackers' favorite APIs to exploit because organizations often don't know about them, Mark said. So yeah, basically the idea is you lose track of them, right? Just like with assets, with systems or EC2 instances or whatever, right? Virtual machines, applications. Eventually, if you're not tracking this stuff, you're gonna lose track of that, right? It's gonna fall off your radar and it's going to now become a vulnerable API, right? Because for instance, when you go to get a penetration test against your APIs, right? You might be like, these are our five APIs that you can deal with, right? That, that you can interact with as a customer. And then it's all of a sudden, well, actually you have these other 15 that are zombie APIs that you didn't tell us about. Why didn't you tell us about those? Oh, well, those are old APIs that we completely forgot about and we completely forgot to get rid of them or make sure they were secure right? Like that, those are the kinds of issues that you're facing with all of this stuff. So really, really important. Next article, FBI and Ukrainian police seized nine crypto exchanges used by cyber criminals. A joint operation conducted by the FBI and Ukrainian police seized nine crypto exchanges used by cyber criminal groups for money laundering. Web resources offered user, uh, users anonymous exchange of cryptocurrencies such services were provided to facilitate the legalization and laundering of money obtained illegally, state, uh, states the press release published by the Ukraine's cyber police. Through exchanges, attackers channeled assets obtained as a result of malware attacks, crypto viruses, and online fraud exchanges, exchange services 
advertise on closed hacker forums. The law enforcement entity sees the infrastructure behind the crypto exchanges along with the domains associated with them. The C servers were located in the United States of America, European countries, and Ukraine. Many of these services are advertised on cybercrime forums and services were offering support in both Russian and English. So, you know, the, regardless of what you think, the crypto world is riddled with issues, right? There's vulnerability issues because a lot of governments are not necessarily willing to get involved with these cryptocurrencies and regulate them or the cryptocurrencies don't want to be regulated, right? Like that's a big deal why you would go to a cryptocurrency. There's all these kind of money laundering and shadow issues, if you will, right? We see countries specifically like North Korea who are all over crypto exchanges and cryptocurrency because they have so many sanctions against them. They try to use these exchanges and these methods to launder their money specifically, right? Like they are a well-known uh, government entity that tries to do this, right? But then of course, we also have things like ransomware groups and other groups that try to launder the money and make it basically clean money, right? Because the idea is if you get money or cryptocurrency through uh, because of illegitimate things, right? Like crimes, you sold drugs or something, I don't know, whatever. But that money is considered dirty and you have to launder that, right? So they send it through a crypto exchange and basically maybe it goes through a couple crypto exchanges, right? And then on the other side, it comes out and you can't track all that activity. That's the idea, right? It's just like with paper money, the same kind of idea, but it's just changing the median or the method that you're using to launder that money. So, you know, pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, if you don't know about, for instance, North Korea and how they do this stuff, I would definitely go check out a podcast like Dark Reading, or excuse me, um, Darknet Diaries, uh, because Darknet Diaries has some specific podcast episodes that talk about some of this stuff. So it's super interesting and definitely worth reading up on if you're interested in kind of these emerging areas and these kind of crime connected areas. But uh, nonetheless, you know, crypto is full of just issues, right? Like it's nowhere near fully resolved and fully safe. You know, normal, normal crypt or normal currency environments aren't either, right? Like, but there's a lot of, a lot more protections associated with them. So, you know, we'll, we'll see kind of how these things continue to evolve. And I think the more that governments get involved and start to regulate some of these cryptocurrency exchanges and environments, you know, I think that's going to help kind of alleviate things. But honestly, like a lot of these algorithms and things that are backing these crypto exchanges, we see that either those have issues or like the founders who have the ultimate keys to some of this backend stuff, you know, they create issues or they start exfiltrating money. Like there's all kinds of issues. We're not even going to go into it on this show because there's just there's all kinds of things, right? It's an emerging technology. So uh, with that, we are going to go ahead and uh, jump to an advertisement here that helps support a lot of this content that you see. So I'll see you on the other side of that. Are you tired of overpaying for cybersecurity training? Are you interested in training from industry professionals? Are you looking for cybersecurity career services? 
If you answered yes to any of those questions, then CyberTrainingPro.com is the perfect platform for you. At CyberTrainingPro, we're a one-stop shop for all your cybersecurity needs. We can train you for industry certifications or just improve your overall knowledge and skills in a certain area. Unlike other platforms, we don't stop there. We can also coach you throughout your career, practice your interview skills, or create a high-performing resume with our career services. CyberTrainingPro.com isn't just another training platform. Students get exclusive access to our private community where we go beyond training courses to provide additional content, tips and tricks, and engagement with both other students and staff. Look, by the year 2025, there could be as many as 3.5 million job openings in cybersecurity. With so much opportunity, why not maximize your career potential with a platform that cares about your success? Come join us at CyberTrainingPro.com and start building your future today. All right, definitely check out CyberTrainingPro.com for all your training. And again, they help support a lot of this content and making sure that we continue to drive value here. So next article is gonna be T-Mobile discloses second data breach of 2023, this one leaking account pins and more. T-Mobile on Monday said it experienced a hack that exposed account pins and other customer data in the company's second network intrusion this year, so in 2023, and the ninth since 2018. The intrusion, which started on February 24th and lasted until March 30th, affected 836 customers, according to a notification on the website of Maine Attorney General Aaron Frey. From 2018 to, uh, through 2022, T-Mobile disclosed seven more hacks in the most recent of those reported in April 2022. A hacker gang that goes by the name of Lapsus, we know Lapsus, gained access to the company's internal tools and from there carried out so-called SIM swaps, a type of attack that allows unauthorized people to port someone's phone number on, uh, to the phone of the threat actor. Yeah, so we talked about that lapsus attack on this show last year. And, you know, definitely go back and look if you want to read up on that and learn more about that specific attack. But with this article, this really just makes me think of reputa organizational reputation, right? If you're a company that constantly gets breached, you know, what does that say about your company, right? Now, granted, some companies are very, very complex, right? Sometimes change takes time, right? Sometimes to fix a lot of issues, you gotta take time. You gotta have resources. You gotta have money to pay these people to come in, either consultants or staff or contractors or whatever, right? So it takes time, but that's just crazy. Like they're just getting hacked so much that it's just like, like, what are you guys doing to improve your security, right? Like, it's, it's just so bad to get hacked that many times. Like, a lot of times what we see is companies will get hacked maybe a few times, and they're usually related to the same thing, right? And that happens, right? Like, we totally see that. It's not a good thing, right? But it happens. These are almost like, you know, nine separate hacks or, you know, maybe like three, four different examples or situations of hacks within the last several years. I mean, you just got to do better, right? Like that's just so bad. But then also think about this. When is the point that customers are going to stop going with you because you're hacked so much, right? A lot of times we're creatures of habit, right? So we find a service or something that we like because of cost, the features that it provides, uh, 
maybe we like the logo. I don't know, right? Like, whatever. But what is that point where customers just say, I've had enough? Like, you constantly are getting breached and it's not worth dealing with you because you're obviously, you just don't care or you're not putting the right resources into place to take care of this. So, you know, re really bad. Uh, bad, right? Like, you know, hopefully the attacks are kind of like uh, less severe, <laughs> but it's just, it's just so bad. Gosh. Next article, CISA advises FCC covered list for risk management. U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, or CISA, has urged organizations to incorporate the covered list created by the Federal Communication Commission, the FCC, into their risk management plans. The list encompasses a number of communication equipment and service providers that have been determined by the U.S. government to pose a potential national security risk according to the Secure and Trusted Communication Networks Act of 2019. There's a quote, organizations that are bound to CISA's directives are required to follow them and take necessary actions while for civilian organizations, CISA uh, directives are simply a recommendation. Vulcan Cyber Senior Technical Engineer Mike Parkin told InfoSecurity in an email, this is a quote, however, from a cybersecurity perspective, they have been historically uh, sound recommendations and are well worth following. Some of the companies included on the list are Huawei, ZTE, Dawei, and China Unicom, among others. So if you haven't seen this list, go check it out. You know, it's not a super long list, right? But there are specific companies that are listed on there. And you have to reasonably believe based on, especially the limited number of companies that are specifically called out on that list, that there's a lot of vetting that goes through in that process, right? And, you know, Huawei is one and ZTE especially too. We've seen a lot of discussions on them lately, right? We'll probably end up seeing TikTok on there too, honestly. <laughs> but, um, you know, some of these lists, especially when they're government furnished lists, they're not bad to take a look at, right? And take into consideration, depending on what your company is, what you do for a business, right? Maybe you don't want to follow that, right? If you're just a regular company, a privately held company that doesn't do business with the government, you know, I mean, that's on you, right? Like, that's your decision. But I think it does um, make sense to go ahead and check out the list and just understand what companies are on there, right? A lot of times, they're not the only player in town, right? Like, the companies that are on there, it's not like, oh, this company that does this one thing, we're going to throw them on the list so people can't get this one product, right? I mean, there's other know, cell phone providers and things like that that are on that are available that are not on that list, right? So go check it out. We're not going to dive too deep into that, but uh, typically it is a good idea to at least consider the the list and the companies that are on there and not using those companies. So next article: nine out of ten companies detected software supply chain security risks, facing a growing threat. More than seventy percent of companies confirm that current application security solutions fail to protect companies from software supply chain security risks, according to a recent report. Global research conducted by Dimensional Research and commissioned by Reversing Labs revealed evidence that organizations recognize and have been impacted by software supply chain security threats. The Reversing Labs software su supply chain security survey found that 90% of technology professionals 
detected significant risks in their software supply chain in the last year. More than 70% said that current application security solutions aren't providing necessary protection. Now, other key highlights in the survey included nearly all respondents, so 98%, recognize that software supply chain issues pose a significant business risk, citing concerns beyond code with vulnerabilities, secrets exposure, tampering, and certificate misconfigurations. Interestingly, more than half of technology professionals, so 55%, cited secret leaks, secrets leak, leaked through source code as a serious business risk, followed by malicious code, 52%, and, a suspicious, and suspicious code, 46%. 88% of survey recipients recognize that software supply chain security is an enterprise-wide risk, but only six out of 10 felt that their supply, software supply chain defenses were up to the task. So yeah, we've talked so much about software supply chain and supply chain risk on this show. We talk about it, I feel like almost every, every week, right? Maybe at least every other week, if not every week. But it's a real issue, right? Especially with software, but supply chain in general, right? So supply chain in general, it basically is the, the products or the software or the services that you use to create whatever you're doing, right? Or provide whatever you're doing as a company. So maybe you created like an iPhone, for instance, the screen, the buttons, the software on there, uh, the circuitry on there, you know, all of that stuff that goes into that product, that is the supply chain, right? And so specifically with software, obviously it's a software supply chain. But that's going to be like modules, libraries, any code, you know, anything to do with the software development. The, uh, how about the people that help develop it, right? If you outsource development, all of that stuff goes into that software supply chain. So you have to do a good job of evaluating what creates that widget, right? Whatever your widget is or your service, what creates or develops that? And then you have to look at all of those pieces. You have to track changes in those pieces, right? So for instance, we see a lot of stuff with NPM, module, uh, NPM code, right? And a lot of, you know, we've talked about a lot of articles related to that. But, you know, GitHub is creating things to actually help you document where your code came from, right? So, you know, all of that is something that you have to be considerate of, you have to be concerned with, you have to evaluate that kind of stuff. If you're implementing libraries that you're getting from somewhere, right? What kind of libraries are you implementing? What security risks do those have? Over time, are there new security risks that are associated to those security or those libraries? You know, all this stuff is supply chain, right? And a lot of companies don't have a good grasp on that, right? Like that's not news, right? Like that's not new. So you just, you have to do a better job of first evaluating what you're implementing, right? What you're bringing in and then go from there as far as security risks, right? So really, really important, really emerging area actually in cybersecurity and development, honestly. So very, very, uh, very, very important. So next article, passwordless Google accounts are here. You can now switch to passkey only. Google has taken a big step towards our supposedly passwordless future by enabling pass 
key-only Google accounts. In the blog post titled The Beginning of the End of the Password, Google says we've begun rolling out support for pass keys ac across Google accounts on all major platforms. There'll be an additional option that people can use to sign in alongside passwords, two-step verification, two, uh, 2SV, etc. Previously, you've been able to use a pass key with a Google account as part of a two-factor authentication. That was always in addition to a password. Now it's possible to use a Google account with a pass key instead of a password. Passkey, if you haven't heard of the new authentication method, is a new way to log into apps and websites and may someday replace a password. Password entry began as a simple text box for humans, and those text boxes slowly had automation and co uh, complication bolted onto them as the desire for a higher security arrived. While used, uh, while used to type a remembered word into a password field, today, the right way to use a password is to have a password manager paste a random string of characters into the password box. Since a few of us physically type our passwords, pass keys remove the password box. So, you know, there's this whole urge to go to password list authentication, right? Like that's not all that new either, honestly. And we've seen that, you know, passwords in the in it of themselves are one of the biggest vulnerabilities with authentication, right? If all you have is a password, we know that shorter passwords are easier to crack than longer passwords. And passphrases, the special symbols and numbers and capitals and lower cases, like that all makes it more complex, right? We started going to two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication, two-step verification, because Google's got to be different and call it something else, uh, <laughs> or at least in this article. But... You know, all those things make it more com uh, more complex, more difficult to compromise. You see things like uh, SMS codes being sent out or codes being sent out to email and authenticator apps and whatever, right? Like all this stuff. So it's interesting to see Google start rolling this out. I think that other companies and vendors are going to start trying it out too, like Apple, um, you know, biometrics and things like that. But you know, I think we're a ways away from it being truly mainstream. But again, it's interesting to see those kind of things roll out, right? New technologies. Those are always good. So good, good article. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week. Again, this was your Threat Intel Briefing for April 30th, 2023 through, uh, through May 6th, 2023. Again, I'm your host, John Good. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. If you're listening on the on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Also, just a reminder, make sure to check out cybertrainingpro.com. Again, that's one of our sponsors. It helps make all this content possible. So definitely check them out for training and all that good stuff. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week. I want to thank you for joining, and I'll see you next time.